Romans chapter 14, and we will be reading the entire chapter. Romans chapter 14, and just to give you a little bit about the background, Paul writes here regarding those Christians who are weak and those who are strong. There are some Christians who came to know the Lord, some Jewish Christians, uh, and uh, they came to know Christ and they had particular uh, food ordinances that they were following from the Old Testament and they did not feel, their consciences did not allow them to feel comfortable eating particular foods and yet there were other Christians within the church, Gentiles in particular, who had come to know Christ and yet their convictions were different. And in the celebration of holy days, uh, whether it be festivals, Jewish festivals, or the Sabbath, there were differences as well. And so this is what this passage speaks about as Paul addresses this particular issue. Romans 14, verse 1. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but... He who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, who are you to judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food for him whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things are indeed clean, but 
They are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study of God's word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come once again before your word. And we pray, O God, that you would help us to have a reverence for you and for your word. For these are the things that have been written by you. We pray, God, that we might hear and understand and your spirit would grant to us illumination of mind that we too, Father, might follow you. The sake of your name. And your Son, in Jesus' name, Amen. Since the inception of the church, a couple thousand years ago, in the New Testament times, as well as times such as today, believers have always had differences, conflicts, and debates over issues that are non-moral, non-doctrinal, not explicitly stated or implicitly taught, areas that are not commanded nor prohibited by the Bible. And these are areas that Christians have had differing opinions, different convictions, and legitimate areas of liberty. And I can think of a lot of them, even growing up, seeing people have various discussions, debates, even conflict over various areas. Areas such as things like food, or things like the things we can drink or not drink. Special days that we're supposed to observe, or even more controversial things among Christians, such as drinking alcohol, or dancing certain styles of music or styles of haircuts or types of clothing or instruments that Christians, some Christians oppose like drums in a church or even swimming in the same swimming pool with others of the opposite gender. Some debate over competitive sports, which they say is ego building or Sunday activities even like reading the comics or the viewing of any movies at all or the playing of cards or how people choose to spend their money, or smoking, even. A couple of weeks ago, I was on vacation with my family and sat in this uh, church, particular church, an interesting church, had a sign there in the, I think it was in the uh, worship hall, that said, uh, no smoking, I said something like, no smoking on the patio. Now, I grew up in a church, I remember the church saying, having a sign there that said, no smoking. And I thought to myself, boy, it's no smoking on the patio. I wonder if that implies or means that one can go and smoke someplace else, like maybe in the foyer or something like that. Sure enough, after service, some guy was lighting up on the church lawn. They just didn't want people to smoke on the patio. Fascinating church. They even had a uh, credit card machine in the foyer. You could give your offering by sliding it and pushing in your pin. Leslie Flynn writes in his book, Great Church Fights, quote, Why disagreements exist today in our churches over certain practices? A Christian from the South may be repelled by a swimming party for both men and women, then offend his northern brother by lighting up a cigarette. 
At an international conclave for missionaries, a woman from the Orient could not wear sandals with a clear conscience. A Christian from Western Canada thought it worldly for a Christian acquaintance to wear a wedding ring. Well, and a woman from Europe thought it almost immoral for a wife not to wear a ring that signaled her status. A man from Denmark was pained to even watch British Bible school students play football, while the British students shrank away from his pipe smoking. Unquote. Music has been an area of controversy in the Christian church, and even especially in America. I remember learning in seminary, more, more churches split over the subject of the style of music than over doctrine, sadly to say. And it is easy for us as Christians to be quick to judge, quick to condemn others in certain areas. And throughout the church history, there have been differences over various areas which we call gray areas. What is considered gray even differs. The differences occur because people have different backgrounds. People have been brought up in different ways. Certain people have uh, beliefs about associations with worldliness or the implications perhaps of particular activities or maybe the convictions of Christians depending upon their own maturity in Christ. Some Christians have even tried to expand gray areas because even the items that are gray are not completely agreed upon by Christians. And they tried to expand gray areas to include doctrinal areas or theological areas, areas that are moral, like abortion or physician-assisted suicide or the viewing of pornography in movies. Others argue by saying, well, the Bible doesn't say anything explicitly. You can't point to a particular chapter and verse that says you can't do that. But the weakness we know of the argument is that the Bible isn't given to us as a rule book that has all sorts of rules for every single situation, for every single time in all cultures and, and all of that. But it's given to us as there are some things that are very, very clear and other things which we have principles by which we apply. Some apply. And what we call gray areas, as we're talking about today, are those areas which are non-doctrinal gray areas, moral areas that aren't explicitly or implicitly taught in the scriptures that God has not prohibited for us or he has not commanded of us to do. And Christians end up having many areas like this, many areas of disagreement, issues that come along. And, and then they categorize in their own minds, oh, they're very legalistic about this or they're very liberal about that. And the legalists would say that everything seems to be black and white. There are very little gray areas, if any at all, and believe that there is no neutral color and they adhere to a rigid set of rules by which people can do or can't do certain things and try to categorize everything that comes along life's way. They have very little gray area at all. And the person who is uh, more inclined to license or wider view of their liberties, they also are very similar to legalists in that their area of perspective of gray areas is also very small. In fact, everything them is white, unless it's explicitly prohibited by the Bible. And many things they feel are fine. And what's, what's wrong with this or what's wrong with that? Christians tend to be people who have varying convictions regarding various subjects like I mentioned. And they may feel very 
constrained not to do certain things in certain areas, but very free in other areas. And they may differ in op- polar opposite to some other Christian that may feel just very, very different about things. And yet they're not even consistent in the principles that they apply to why they feel the way that they feel. Well, Paul addresses this very area when it came to the church in Rome because there were the, the threat of uh, division within the church over areas that were gray. And he calls these various convictions and people who fall into various categories as the strong Christian or the weak Christian. It doesn't necessarily have to do with one's maturity, but perhaps it implied their, their strength of conviction regarding particular things. Some were newer Christians, and yes, they perhaps were weaker in various things, but here in this context, Paul t- talks about how we are to treat one another when it comes to differing convictions regarding various things that are perhaps legitimately debatable. We have been going through the book of Romans, and in Romans chapter 12, we saw that in Romans chapter 12, we were to be people who were those who were giving our lives as living sacrifices, and not to live in a prideful way, but to live in a very humble way, not to be prideful in thinking that we're better than others, and then we're to view others in the church as those who were important, having gifts that are important, how we are obligated then to love one another. How we are to love them as we would love ourselves. And how we are to even treat those that aren't part of the body of Christ. How we are to treat those who are uh, perhaps mistreating us. That we are not to take vengeance upon them. That we are not to have a, a vengeful, a retaliatory type of viewpoint regarding them. And that we are to submit ourselves, lastly, to the government and to the governing authorities and to put on Christ-likeness. And in all of these things, we are to live a life as a Christian ought to. A life of love. A life of love for God by committing ourselves to God. A life of love towards others. And committing ourselves to obligating ourselves to loving others. Though we may be conducting ourselves towards God and towards others in a spirit of love, there are going to be differences. And these differences have to do with our differences in conviction. And Paul's concern here is about the unity of the church. Unity of the church despite differences in opinions. And so here he gives in chapter 14 three reasons why we are to accept other people who have differing opinions. Three reasons why we are to accept other people with differing opinions about areas that are not made clear in the Bible. So he begins here in verses 1 through 4. First of all, we're to accept others with a weaker faith because God has accepted them. Why are we to? Because God has accepted them. Number one, it says in verse 14, verse 1, we are commanded, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment. One has faith that he may eat all things. One who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who doesn't eat. And the one who does eat is not to judge the one who does eat. Why? For God has accepted him. As I shared with you before, some Jews had come to know Christ. They had come to know Christ and for them, a Jewish individual had come out of various legal obligations. They were trying to fulfill the Old Testament law. There were... Offerings and sacrifices that they felt that perhaps they had to make. There were holidays. There were the Sabbath. When you weren't to work at all, in fact, you could only walk so far from your home. 
even some Jews today who are still Jews, they try to do as little work as they can. You know, they have doors that will open automatically for them at home or lights that will turn on automatically so that they don't have to do any work. And some Jews felt constrained. They were they, they felt that you needed to keep the Sabbath or that you weren't able to eat pork or that you needed to follow the Jewish dietary restrictions. Even some Gentiles who came out of a particularly idolatrous background, there was meat that was committed to idols and uh, dedicated to idols. And then the, those old pagan Pagan priests, they would say, well, you know, we can still make a profit off of not what's not burned. Let's take the meat that hasn't been offered. We'll sell it at the meat market. But the Gentile who knew that this meat was dedicated to that idol didn't feel at all comfortable eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols in the meat market, even though it was very cheap. But the Jewish person perhaps would feel perfectly comfortable with that. On the other hand, there were Jews, or there were Gentiles in, in the city of Rome who came out of a secular society. They had no problem eating pork. I mean, in fact, in Greco-Roman world, pork was considered a delicacy. So, they came to know Christ as well, and they didn't feel any obligation to follow Old Testament dietary laws. And there were some Jews who also came to know Christ and they felt the freedom to eat and not to have to practice the Sabbath and all of that. There were all sorts of individuals who came to know Christ. Each had differing convictions and some were called strong and some were called weak. The one who felt constrained that they needed to follow particular rules or laws were called the weak. As Paul terms them here. Those who felt that, you know what, there was a lot of liberty in their convictions. God, Paul calls the strong. And to each, Paul says, look, don't judge the other, it says in verse 3. Don't treat with contempt. And don't judge or condemn them. Just treat with contempt. The word means to consider as worthless. To consider as worthless. I mean, you can imagine how it might involve in conflict. A Jew and a Gentile Christian, they go to lunch, they go to lunch and they say, well, let's go have lunch. And the Jew says, yeah, sure, let's go have lunch. They go out and the Gentile decides he's going to order some pork chops. And the Jew decides he's going to order a salad. He says, why are you eating a salad? Are you a vegetarian? No, I'm not a vegetarian. I just don't, you know, feel kind of, you shouldn't eat it. Don't worry about that. The Old Testament doesn't say anything about that. Well, yeah, but you know what? I, 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 you know, and that pork chop, you know, I don't, you really shouldn't eat that. You know, because God may, he just doesn't, he just doesn't think that is such a great idea. And then you can see how it can get into a, a series of discussions about what's right and what's wrong, what, the, what their motive is. Aren't you trying to please God? Don't you want to cause other people to come to know Christ, etc., etc.? And the Jew begins to resent his Gentile brother. The Gentile begins to think his liberal friend is just a, a legalist, a narrow-minded kind of a fella. God says, look, accept one another. Accept one another. When they exercise their freedom... Because God will cause them to stand, it says. God has accepted him. God has accepted him. And the Lord is able to make him stand. You know, in other words, their salvation, their, their future is not dependent upon what they eat or don't eat. In these areas of liberty where our attitude is not to be, as one poet wrote, Believe as I believe, no more, no less. That I am right and no one else confess. Feel as I feel. Think only as I think. Eat what I eat and drink but what I drink. Look as I look. 
Do always as I do. Then and only then will I fellowship with you. Some Christians see life as that way. If you don't do exactly the way I want you to do things, then, well, you know what? Maybe you ought to go stand over there with that group. Or maybe you ought to go to that church or whatever it might be. God tells us that He has accepted them in these areas, non-doctrinal, non-moral areas. We are to be accepting of one another. Because God is concerned about the heart and the motive of the heart. And that is the second area by which he says in verses 5 through 9. Accept the convictions of others because or when they do it for the Lord. Accept the convictions of others because or when they do it for the Lord. He says in verse 5, One person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. If we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. You see, in this context, being strong or being weak doesn't have to do with one's spiritual standing doesn't have to do with one's, uh, one's salvation. I mean, there are certain areas, you know, that we talk about, that we debate about, or whatever it might be. Someone might disagree with you if you feel that, well, you know what, if I go buy Krispy Kreme and have a donut every day, it's not such a bad thing. I only have one. Whereas others might be very health conscious, and you're not to judge or, 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 or look upon them with contempt. Some Christian Jews here held the Sabbath very highly. Very highly, such that, you know, it was a holy day and you weren't to work or do anything. Some Gentile Christians, they they felt that the old pagan festivals, they weren't to have anything to do with them. But God is concerned about the motive and the intent of the heart when He says that they're, they're done for the Lord and they're done to please God. And so we see here in this particular section of text, there are two principles or two phrases in particular that have import in our decision making and the motive of our heart. One is, it says in verse 5, each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, that we are to be people who are convinced in our own mind, who have a clear conscience about what we are doing. We are to have a clear conscience in what we are doing. In verse 22, later on in the passage, you notice it says, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Verse 23, But he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. So you do it because you know it is clear with your conscience. You know and believe it's the right thing to do. Don't violate our conscience. That's the principle. Don't violate our conscience and sin against God. Our conscience is, is, is like the, the nerves in our bodies giving us sensitivity towards what is sinful and what is not. And that is why it is important to have a well-informed conscience. Because our conscience will convict us of sin and convict our minds and remind us, you know what, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Now, our conscience might be misinformed because the conscience is not the, not the, the, the tell-all or the clearinghouse of what is right and what is wrong. I mean, our conscience may be misinformed or our conscience might be desensitized or our conscience might be even seared, as the Bible says, 
due to years of violating our conscience, or we may not be accustomed, and we may be ignoring our consciences through all these years, and then we dull our consciences. But the Word of God tells us the conscience is is to be clear. As Paul pleads and he writes, I'm doing this, and he says, "I, I have a clear conscience before God. And if we're serious about knowing what the right and the wrong thing to do is in a particular situation before the Lord, let me encourage you to be in the Word of God. Because the Word of God trains our conscience, you see. The Word of God hones our conscience and it sensitizes our conscience and our heart. It informs the conscience as to what is right and what is wrong. And when we're in the Word of God, our spirit knows and, and, and the Spirit of God reminds us in our conscience, convicting us of right and convicting us of wrong. And you see, the longer you are in the Word of God, the more honed you are to what is right and what is wrong. And your conscience is geared and and inclined towards that which is right then. And you can have a pure conscience when you do what is right. So let me encourage you to spend time in the Word of God if you want to know what's right and wrong. That's why it's so difficult. Some people, well, how do I know what, what God wants me to do? Or how do I know what's right and wrong in a particular situation? It's so important. I ask them, well, have you been walking with God? How's your relationship with God? Because it's so hard to know. If you're not walking with God, how in the world will you know what is right and what is wrong? And how can the Spirit of God remind you of the truth of His Word? You might not know. You might not know, and if you're serious about knowing what to do in particular situations, some situations, what is wise or what is unwise, then be in the Word of God and let your conscience be honed and transformed and sensitized and trained. And I pray for my own self. From time to time, I remind myself of this. And I ask God, God, make my heart sensitive to sin. God, make my heart sensitive to sin. Help me to know... Clear my conscience. And even today, later on, when we come before the Lord's table in communion, it is a time for purification. Yet pray, I pray for myself. God, purify my heart, that my heart might be sensitive to sin. Bring to my mind the things that I have done wrong, that I might confess them before you and not do them again. Make my, sense, make my heart sensitive and make my conscience clean. And so it says here, each person must be fully convinced. And your heart, your heart needs to be right before God. Because if we don't, then we may make a decision that is not wise. Second, another area regarding the conscience is that even though we may have a particular conviction, we cannot or should not impose our conviction upon others who don't have that conviction. Causing them to violate their conscience. And saying, do as I do because I feel this is right or whatever it might be. And though they feel strongly against it, don't force them or put them on a guilt trip in order to make them do something such that their convictions, true convictions in which they desire to do what is right and they violate that conscience. I mean, outwardly, outwardly they may conform, but inwardly they sin. So we don't force people and violate their conscience or ridicule them or whatever it may be. And Paul implies that, you know what, we're not to do that and treat others with contempt. So secondly, it says, for not one of us lives for himself and not one dies for himself. We live, we live for the Lord. We die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, if we live or die, we are the Lord's. 
This is part of the idea and the second principle of accepting others because they do things for God. They feel it's the right thing to do before God. And you know, do you remember 1 Corinthians 10.31 where it reminds us, whatever then you eat or you drink, do it all for the glory of God. Even the simplest things in life, eating and drinking, you do it for the glory of God. Some people have tried to get around this. No, no, you don't do everything for the glory of God. Even though it says all things for the glory of God. There are exceptions. And we can think of all sorts of exceptions of things they don't do or aren't supposed to do or don't have to do for God's glory. But the truth of the matter is we live for God. As it says here, we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Do you know one of the most helpful passages in helping people when you counsel them is or you're trying to help them and orient their mind? In 2 Corinthians 5.9, I always encourage people to turn this passage. 2 Corinthians 5.9, it's a wonderful passage when you're helping someone and you're really trying to um, counsel them or, or encourage them in their, their walk. 2 Corinthians 5.9 tells us very clearly, our mind, our framework of mind, our framework of mind, for it says here, therefore, As Paul writes, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, to be pleasing to him. Our ambition in life is not to be happy. Our purpose in life is not to be happy. Our purpose in life is not to be wealthy or self-indulgent or whatever. Our purpose in life and all that we do is to please God. Someday because we'll stand before God and God evaluates the intent and the motivation of our heart. What is the motivation of our heart? Why did you choose to do what you did on that day? Or why did you choose to do what you did in that situation? And that's what is important in this passage to the Christians in Rome. Was it because you had a clear conscience and you were doing it? And it says here they did it and gave thanks to God. They did it and they lived for the Lord. It wasn't to please themselves. They weren't trying to keep these special holy days or eat certain or abstain from certain foods because, well, they just simply wanted to or for health benefits or whatever it might be. They did it because they felt God would be more pleased. They felt God would be more pleased. And that was their heart's desire, to live for the glory of God. They live for the glory of God. So no matter what we do, we are to do it for the glory of God. And you know, and there are all sorts of areas. We, can, we have conflicts with various people. But we ask ourselves, am I doing it really because God will be more pleased? I think God will be more pleased with me when I choose, make that choice. You know, whether it be, well, I think I'm going to do this or, or see that or enjoy this vacation. Or even questions people have in churches, whether or not should I dress up or not dress up. I mean, for myself, I mean, my mother taught me when I was young, you know, Saturday nights are a time to prepare your heart for the Lord. Prepare for a wonderful day of worship with all the believers will gather together. And she always taught me, well, when I was young, that, you know what, it's good to have all your clothes that you're going to wear on that Sunday laid out so you know what you're going to wear. You're not rushing and just throwing anything on because it's a special day for the Lord. And you wake up early. And, you, and, and then you come to church early so that you can spend some time in prayer preparing your heart for the worship that will come the word of God that will come and that's how I was taught 
And I still remind myself of that. I don't dress up out of tradition or dress up out of... I remind myself, even this morning, I'm standing, I stand in front of the mortar, and I say to myself, God, what a wonderful... You know, God, I do this for you because I, you are my God. And I, I, I come before you and I think to myself, if I were going to some special, this most special event, well, how would I, how would I dress? And Sundays are such a joy for me. But I don't consider it a legalistic thing out of righteousness to dress up or whatnot. I was in the Philippines or Cambodia. I wasn't even thought how I was going to dress. Whatever would honor the Lord in that culture or in that place. Maybe in Hawaii it's to dress up in a Hawaiian shirt or whatever. In Cambodia it was to dress up in a nice shirt. And in the Philippines they had a certain shirt, you know, that was very, very cool and all that. And they, they, they brought a, a shirt for me to wear. And that's fine. Whatever it is, do it for God. That's why. Do it for God because you want God to be pleased. You say to yourself, you know what, I'm going to do this, or I'm going to go here, or I'm going to decide, make this decision. Why? Because you want God to be pleased. And that's the philosophy too, as as those of you who have been through the shepherding a child's heart, that we teach our kids, that we do it because it pleases God. Because someday you parents aren't going to be here anymore. And you don't want them to do it simply because they'll get in trouble or simply because, well, they don't please mom and dad. But do it because they pleases God. And God will smile upon their life. And God will be proud of them. Because someday they stand before God and they stand before God and it says God will judge them for the intent of their heart. And so we accept others thirdly because God will judge them in verses 10 to 12. We regard, we judge our brother. It says, don't judge your brother. Don't judge your brother. Don't treat him with contempt. Why? Because every knee will bow and every tongue confess and give praise to God. We'll give an account to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 tells us to live to please God. Do you know what it says in 10? 10 is for the believers. For those who are Christians. Because Christians will come before the judgment seat of Christ as well. Right? That is the Bema seat. That is the seat of reward in verse 10. And it says, 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will be recompensed in his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. The good things you do, the bad things you do. They'll be tested by fire, as it says in 1 Corinthians 3. And you'll be rewarded or not, depending on what you've done here in this life. There won't be excuses. We won't be standing with someone else. We won't be able to blame someone else for ourselves. But we do it to please Christ. And there are areas in which we are not to treat or judge others with contempt and what they do or what they don't do. Because they do it for the Lord and they will stand by themselves before the Lord. But it affects many Christians. It affects other Christians. You know, in the Victorian era, there were two preachers in England who were very, very well known. Charles Spurgeon was considered the prince of preachers. And he would, he would have a large number of things that he has written that pastors will read today. And it is just a treasury of wonderful things. He was a friend with a, another preacher named Joseph Parker. And they were friends for a long time. Brave, mighty preachers in the word of God in England. But early in their ministry, you know, they would share or exchange pulpits and they fellowshiped. But later on, there was a conflict between those two. Charles Spurgeon accused Joseph Parker of being worldly because he went to see, uh, went to a theater, attended the theater. Spurgeon himself, though, 
I don't know if you know, but he smoked cigars. And, you know, many Christians and non-Christians today would frown upon something like that. And when he was asked, well, why did he do it? He said, well, I, I just don't smoke in excess. When asked what was excessive, he said, well, no more than two at a time. So now... There they were. They were in this fight. It was a, such a great conflict in England. They wound up in the newspapers. Someday, who knows who's right? You know, maybe they most, both might be wrong. And certainly the conflict that they had wasn't glorifying to God. There are those who are weak and those who are strong. And we're not to judge them or to stand in contempt of them. In the body of Christ, there are many convictions that you have and I have. Others within the church such as maybe how communion is taken or how people use certain instruments or whatnot or how what people wear, various things. We're not to divide over those things. Those aren't to be the primary things. Just like a lady who called the office out of the blue this week. You know, she, she called the office and she had one and only one question which she asked. She said, oh, I want to have, I have one question. She says, how long is your time of singing? In service. And I said, well, I added it up. I said, maybe 20, 25 minutes, maybe something like that. She says, oh, I'm looking for something a lot longer. Those pastors, I wonder what they think we'll be doing in heaven. I didn't want to get in any discussion with her. And I wished her well and hoped that she'd find a church that was helpful for her or whatnot. You know, some people feel the worship time is too long. Some people feel it's too short or whatever. There are some churches who feel King James is the only way, the only version, or the NIV or whatever translation. The motive of the heart is to please God. And we don't judge or to condemn others and how they treat others because God cares about the motive of the heart. About the motive of the heart when we honor the Lord through the things that we do. And the areas that are not as important we are to accept and understand those differences. There's a story that's read about a play that was given between a father and a son. And this father and this son got into an intense fight. And they got into an intense fight and they walked off and they walked off that evening, not speaking to each other, and they went to sleep. But the son had trouble sleeping that night. Went, was rolling around in bed because he knew that it was not a good thing. So he went downstairs to make himself a sandwich. And when he went downstairs to make himself a sandwich in the kitchen, he saw his father there sitting at the counter because his father couldn't sleep either. And they began to talk about the times when he was a little boy, the times when he was in Little League, the good times that they went hunting and swimming and all the fishing trips that they went on together. And they needed some healing in their relationship and the boy said, Dad, do you remember that time we went out to the lake in that green boat? His father said, Yeah. The boat was uh, blue, son. The son said, no, it was green. Your mistake in the boat was blue. It was green, no blue. Green, blue. The son left, never to return again. The moral of the story is that some things simply aren't important to divide over. Those areas, non-moral, non-doctrinal, principles in the scriptures don't even apply. We're to accept one another especially when they do it for the Lord. And God will judge each person. And God...
calls us to be a church and a people who strive for unity within the church on things that really are non-essential. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how oftentimes, Lord, we see the green and the blue of the boat and we forget, Father, that someone is desirous to please you and to live in a way that pleases you. I pray, O Father, that we might not divide over things that are not that important, that aren't taught in your word, that aren't clear, perhaps, that have no implications on moral or doctrinal issues. I pray, O God, that we might be people who would give grace and accept one another. And I pray, O Father, that we might extend that grace to other people. Perhaps they worship in other churches in different ways, in other cultures. I pray, O God, that we might be people who extend to them grace and think of them as our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, Father, that we might use, Father, the things that we have, the convictions that we have for your glory, that our motive might be in all things to please you, not to live for ourselves, for each one, as your word says, lives for you. No one dies for himself either. Well, if we live, we live for you. If we die, may we die for you. For in all things, may it be for you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.